So hi there. Glad to see everyone here this afternoon. My name is Michael Barris. I'm a senior database engineer with the Amazon Relational Database Service. I've worked most of my career as an Oracle DBA, so I'm excited to be able to work on a product that kind of helps make the life of a DBA easier. I've got uh, Phil Eads here with me as a technical architect from the UK Ministry of Justice, so I'm going to be talking about best practices, and then we always love to hear our customers speak for themselves and share their experience, share the challenges they ran into, um, and, and let you know how they, uh, they were able to get around those and make their migration successful. So um, just a quick reminder, we do have a bunch of other sessions, a bunch of other uh, uh, workshops, different types of events, um, in addition to this session. Um, to, this afternoon, there's going to be a migration workshop, a builder session. Tomorrow, we have a partner workshop. They're going to be talking about migrating from Oracle to Postgres. Um, and then on Thursday afternoon, we also have a, a two-hour workshop where we'll be talking about kind of walking you through hands-on creating Oracle instances through the console um, and showing you how to use our database migration service to migrate those. So lots of good content, lots of things to keep in, keep in touch with. Um, do keep in mind, you know, these presentations will be on SlideShare and YouTube, so you don't need to worry about taking notes or pictures too feverishly, but feel free. Um, and then I will, so that we're, we're going to do a, a quick run-through of just what RDS is. We're going to talk best practices for Oracle DBAs. Phil's going to talk about the Ministry of Justice migration story, and uh, then we're going to do a Q&A. Uh, we'll try and keep questions to the end unless I just uh, start talking too fast or, or rambling. Um, and then I'll, I'll stick around for questions. We'll have to move out of this room relatively quickly, but uh, I'll, I'll try and make sure that I get to all your questions. So we'll take a few from the stage, maybe some from the floor, a few from the hallway, and, and wherever else we need to go from there. So can I just get a, a quick show of hands? I'd like to get a poll first. So who's using RDS for Oracle today? Awesome. RDS for anything else in addition to Oracle? Excellent. And then who's just never heard of RDS before, never used it? Never touched it. Very, very good. So, so one or two here and there, but, but uh, it sounds like you guys are, are familiar with the value propositions already, and that's excellent. So, so we'll just kind of rush through the introduction first, uh, first then, just to kind of give everyone a reminder of what, what RDS is. So, so, you know, AWS is a lot of services at this point. We have over hundreds, many hundreds of services, features, capabilities running our cloud. A lot of people think of it as starting with infrastructure. So we've got EC2, we've got storage, we've got S3. You can build pretty much any workload you can dream of these days in AWS. But then because customers find that you know, there's just repeating work that they don't need to keep doing, they don't need to spend their time on, we've got a lot of managed services that we build. So I, I work specifically in the managed databases portfolio and then specifically in the RDS team. But you know, in, in the database world, we heard Andy talk in the keynote this morning, we've got a lot of options, we've got a lot of relational, non-relational databases available to work with in, in AWS. Um, you know, relational is, is our bread and butter still, it's where your business data is. We find a lot of customers are, are moving, so you know, if, if you listen to that keynote, you definitely caught some trends. Um, you know, relational does, uh, the, the, the trend that we're hearing from our customers is, the, is the, definitely they're moving away from relational to non-relational, and they're moving from commercial to non-commercial open source licensed engines. We definitely see that, but that doesn't mean that's everything. Um, and you know, the other thing that he talked about is freedom and choice. And we really believe that, that we want to be where our customers want us to be. So, uh, we have customers that want to run Oracle, so we're going to provide Oracle, and we want to be the, uh, provide a first-class experience for running that in the cloud. So as long as you guys want to keep running Oracle, we're going to keep providing RDS for Oracle. So specifically going to be talking about this. Keep in mind, it is part of a broader picture, a broader landscape, not just in the managed database realm, but the database realm and the, and the AWS realm overall. So what RDS is is kind of in a nutshell. Go to our console, use our API, use our CLI, you create a database instance, and you end up with an endpoint. This is what you connect to. This is how you consume the database. Everything else happens as part of the service. So really what RDS is, is these layers of management, monitoring, and automation that are making all the magic happen in the background. And it's really not too magical, right? You've seen diagrams like this before. You can build these, these infrastructure components. 
You can configure EC2 instances and EBS volumes and back them up to S3. Really, the secret sauce that we're bringing here is our expertise, our, our years of experience running this. We've had RDS for about 10 years now, so you know we're, we're 10 years going strong, um, and we're just going to keep plowing on. And then the size and scale of our infrastructure. So you know we, we tend to see a lot of customers sort of build their own mini RDS. So you know you've got automation and scripts. You're, you're setting up instances. You're managing them yourselves. The benefit of our platform is that it's just much bigger than anything that you can make, just by definition. So we have well over 100,000 customers that we're running database fleets for. Um, and, and this automation is catching all those edge cases. It's handling all those conditions. It's supporting new database engines every day. So, you know, the, the major tenets of RDS, value propositions. Again, we want to offer you that choice. If you want to run MySQL, Postgres, uh, commercially licensed engines like Oracle or Microsoft SQL Server, we're happy to run those for you as well. Um, and it becomes a great enabler for DBAs. So, you know, my experience is an Oracle DBA. We ran shops that were pretty much just Oracle databases. So it's very easy and inexpensive for me to create a new Oracle database. So a developer comes and they say, I want MySQL. They go, well, that's really difficult and expensive for me to do. And they have expensive, it's, it's free. Yeah, but I have to figure out how to install it and back it up and manage it and monitor it. With RDS, we do that for you. So now it's a force multiplier for your DBA. So they still need to figure out how to tune, how to manage information lifecycle, user security within the database, but they don't have to figure out how to install and operate and back up and manage the database. Scalability is, is obviously, you know, when, the, when you come to the cloud, you want that ability to start small, get big, go back to small if you need to. So scalability is obviously a really important criteria for this. Um, and you'll notice this is an area where we're kind of always just sort of linearly expanding over time. About every year, EC2 releases new instance types. Those work their way into RDS. E EBS enhances their storage capabilities and offerings. Our offerings become, you know, better because they're built on top of those. So we're really just building on, on, on the shoulders of other AWS infrastructure here. So today, if you haven't noticed, there, there were a couple of releases in, in the last few weeks. Uh, one of them is that we now support instances up to 32 terabytes in Oracle. That'll work its way to the other engine soon. Um, and we support instances up to four terabytes of memory. So you get a lot of flexibility, a lot of options here. And then, of course, that always needs to be running. You know, these are business workloads. This is your enterprise data. It needs to be up as much as it can. So we offer automation that's keeping your database awake. If it crashes, it's starting it up. If the EC2 instance fails or degrades, we're moving it to a new one. If the volumes have problems, we're offering multi-AZ for failover to new, fresh volumes that, that don't have problems. And we're backing it up. We're making sure that those backups worked. We're making sure that those backups can be restored. And then again, this is your business data. Your customer's trust is in your ability to store data and manage it for them. Um, so security is paramount. We'll dive into that a little bit and talk about some of the things that you could do there. Uh, we offer a lot of capabilities to not just make it secure in the cloud. You know, I talk to a lot of customers, and, and the, the sort of difference in tone of what, what the conversations over the last three or four years are is it started with, I'm scared to move to the cloud. I feel like I'm going to be less secure. I don't understand it. And now it's an understanding that you can actually be more secure in the cloud. And that's because we give you capabilities to automate and audit your infrastructure with APIs, with rules, with things like Andy talked today about with Guard Tower or Control Tower, where we're able to look and, and see managed infrastructure and know that once you put something into that infrastructure, it's just going to follow all those rules. And then price, obviously, is a big, big important component of this. Um, you know, licensing tends to be the biggest part of the, the price when you're working with Oracle, but we want to make sure that we're giving you the, the, the best flexibility of your infrastructure, and then also features that we'll talk about that help you control some of those licensing costs. So, you know, the, the thing that kind of sums it up for me is this kind of graph where you say, the gray boxes are what you have to do for yourself, the orange boxes are what we do for you. And really what it comes down to me as a DBA is that, that last tiny little top box up there. And there's, there's two things wrong with that box where it says app optimization. One, it's not a tiny little box. That's where the entirety of your differentiation from your competitors is. That's where your entire business is. And the second is, 
Um, you know, this is just work that you don't really need to be doing. It's, it's, it's work that we can do for you. It's, it's work that's mundane, that's repeatable, um, that we can take care of. So, so when you look at that, that journey of moving from self-managed on-premises to maybe running on EC2 where you have more control and we're already doing some of this work for you to RDS where we're doing everything, what, what, what we really aim to do is flip on its head the way DBAs work today. So when we do industry surveys, we look at surveys all over the place with Oracle user groups, with uh, industry analysts, we find that, you know, as, as much as we all want to be spending our time working on, on tuning and our applications, DBAs tend to spend their time working on the platform, on, on patching, on backups, on figuring out why that backup didn't run last night, and they spend a lot of time on platform. What we really aim to do is kind of flip that on its head. We want DBAs to be empowered and enabled to spend their time working on tuning your application, keeping it secure, um, keeping, it, keeping it running. Obviously, there's still platform work to do. You've got to, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not selling you a magic trick here. It's, you've, you've got to run the database. You've got to make selections in the console. You've got to keep an eye on things. But we want to make that just a tiny, tiny part of what you do. So, so how are some ways that we do that? So let's, I'm going to talk about four key areas. Security, performance, availability, and configuration. Security obviously comes first because that's really the most important thing. If, if, uh, if we don't have secure infrastructure and, and keep our data safe, then really what's all the rest of it for? So when you look at security issues, I always kind of like to break them out down into two big families. Somebody gets access to your data that shouldn't have access to your data. Somebody who has access to your data gets more access to your data. So breach and escalation. So those are kind of two major themes in security. And you know, what's the one thing that you need to do to solve all those problems? Well, it's all the things, right? It's, it's defense in depth. It's layers of security. It's multiple steps. There's never going to be just one thing that you do for security. It requires a lot of um, effort on your part, both sides. And again, that's why we want to take the infrastructure off your plate and have you focus on these things. And the first level of that is building a secure perimeter around your database. And, and Amazon Virtual Private Cloud is, is a key component of, of our infrastructure that lets you do that. You, you can define private address spaces. And, and really, the key idea here is that you want to keep your database inside of private networks. You don't want to have it accessible directly from the internet. So your applications are going to communicate with the, with the database inside of a VPC. Perhaps those application servers are, are world-facing. Perhaps they, they connect to load balancers that are world-facing. Um, you know, the best, the, the narrowest focus outside of the VPC is, is always going to be the best. What you don't want to do is have people connecting directly in your database. And we give you the ability with Amazon VPC to block that. So you have that first kind of layer of defense. Now, one thing to be aware of with RDS Oracle, we have a nice capability that we talk about that we call outbound network access. It's a great capability. A lot of people use it. Phil's going to be talking about some ways that MOJ has, has used this to their advantage and why it's a good thing. But it is a vector for data egress. It is a, a thing to keep in mind when you, when, you, when you run your database. So you know, the first thing is, if you don't need outbound network access, then go ahead and shut this off. You can control that at the VPC level. VPC level. Make sure that packets just simply can't flow out of your database. If you do want to use these features, they are really great. Database links, sending emails, sending uh, you know, HTTP requests to S3. You can do a lot of neat things with that. But you do want to make sure that you've controlled that egress both at the VPC level. So who am I who, who's my, uh, my database allowed to talk to at a network level? Where are those packets allowed to go? And then using features like DBMS network ACL admin inside the database, which of my users are allowed to use these packages? So um, you, know, you probably don't want everyone being able to call UTL, HTTP to make calls, so you can control that inside the database using features. Again, preventing unauthorized access, keeping people from accessing data they shouldn't. Encryption becomes an important part. And now we have wire encryption for all of our database engines. So um, it, it, you know, Oracle removed a wire encryption from the advanced security option in 11.2, so all additions, all versions that are supported have access to this. There's a couple ways to do it. I find the easiest and the best recommended is going to be the SSL option. You simply add this to your instance. 
When, when you create an instance, we'll give you a TCP listener. You get to choose. You know, is that going to be in port 1521, 1522, wherever, wherever the heck you want to put that? When you add the SSL option, we're going to give you a second listener, a TCPS listener. It's kind of a quirk of the way that Oracle does this, but it, it's kind of nice at the same time, because now you end up with two TCP endpoints, and you can make a choice to, to block that, that, that non-encrypted one and just make sure that all of your applications are, are accessing it. You can do that at the, at the subnet level, at the security group level, um, and give you full control over that. You can't turn it off completely, because our automation still needs to be able to talk to your database. But that all, all happens inside of the, of, of the VPC network, so you don't have to worry about that. Nice little capability there. Uh, we even support TLS 1.2 when you're using 12C or 11G Enterprise Edition. Um, and that's something that Oracle's always giving new versions on. Um, it's, it's simply a matter of creating a wallet and dropping it on your clients. And then same goes for storage. Data encryption at rest is something that you want to do. Uh, you know, the, the, the two biggest problems with encryption at rest over the years have been price. You have to pay for license options to do this. And performance. Well, um, there's a couple ways to do this. If you have the advanced security option on top of Enterprise Edition, you can certainly use TDE to encrypt certain parts of your database, columns, tables, table spaces. Um, but we find that RDS storage encryption just works for most customer use cases. It's the better enabler, gives you the most flexibility, and it removes that licensing component. So this, this works with all of our engines, all of our versions, all of our additions. So you want full disk encryption transparently with standard edition two. You got it with our RDS storage encryption. You could bring your own keys to KMS. You get control over when and how they're accessible. Um, and then to address the second part of that, you know, we've, we've worked really hard. All of our customers need encryption for all things at all times. So we've worked really hard to build encryption capabilities into our physical infrastructure. So nearly all of this is going to be offloaded to, to custom silicone that handles this for, for our customers. So we, we see that performance bottleneck not being an issue anymore. So, so when, you, when you create RDS instances, you'll notice that T2 micros and T2 smalls can't do um, RDS encryption, that's because that, those, those very low-end servers, that's where you do still see a little bit of performance overhead, so we've, we've not enabled that for you. But everywhere else, you can in, in, turn this on, and you're not going to see any, any real overhead to it. Um, how to enable it? Pretty easy. Easiest is going to be creating an instance. You just specify an AWS KMS key ID. We'll encrypt your volume from day one. If you have an existing instance that's not encrypted, you just simply, well, you, it'll be a little bit more complex. You'll need to create a snapshot of that, encrypt the snapshot with a copy, and then restore from that. That works really well with our Amazon database migration service. You can do a logical migration to do that with very little downtime as well. So the second type of security issue is, is escalation of privileges, right? So, so I, I've, I've got these capabilities to control access, but trust but verify, right? You know, software's got bugs. Um, things can happen. You want to make sure that these rules that I've specified, that, that I've prevented my internal users from getting access to certain data, are actually being followed and they're not doing it. And so Oracle gives you really great capabilities here. There's the standard and fine-grade audit, audit trail. Um, oh, by the way, we launched 12.2 a couple weeks ago, and now you get unified auditing in mixed mode. Um, so you get a lot of capability there. We get customers ask us sometimes, you know, who's connecting my, I, I see accounts getting locked. Why, why are those getting locked? Who's connecting my database? Well, it's your database. You need to turn on auditing and see, turn on uh, uh, audit connections whenever successful and whenever not successful, see who's connecting to your database. Who dropped that table? Who added that column? Why did somebody do a DDL at 3 a.m.? These are things that auditing can tell you. Um, and then at the API level, we offer very similar services in the AWS infrastructure overall for um, API auditing a service called CloudTrail. So who created an instance at 3 this morning? Who deleted an instance? Who added a parameter group? Those are all things that you should be able to answer and API, uh, CloudTrail, uh, AWS CloudTrail offers the, the information you need there. And then, of course, it's important to stay up to date on patches. Um, Oracle, every quarter, releases quarterly uh, PSUs, uh, or quarterly critical updates. We generally see those as patch set updates. 
There's a few different flavors of them these days, but we work closely with Oracle to make sure that we can get those to you as quickly as we can. So each quarter, there's gonna be a new release. We're generally gonna lag Oracle by a month or two. It, there's a little bit of work that we have to do. We work with Oracle support to get merge patches, um, and we have to do regression testing on our own. But we'll get those to you. We'll make announcements. It's pretty easy to find them. We've got a what's new that you can subscribe to via RSS. And then we have a describe DB engine versions API that you can simply just write your own automation that calls in the, for the version and engine and region that you're interested in. Check for new, new minor versions that you can upgrade to. And you can even put that as part of some of, some of your automation. We do have um, uh, engine release notes that are gonna list the full composition of those each quarter. So you'll be able, able to see the PSU. In, in 11.2 and 12.1, that's gonna be the PSU. Now that we have 12.2, that's gonna be release updates. So hopefully you're familiar that Oracle's changed the model a little bit there. Uh, release updates are a little bit more similar to the, the proactive bundle patch. They've got more features. Does require a little bit more testing on your part. It's not just security fixes. But we find that those, they're really helpful for customers because those little, little bugs that happen here and, here and there along the way are more likely to get fixed in RUs. So new way going forward. How, how do I test these? Well, we make it pretty easy. You've got snapshots of your instance. We're, we're backing them up, and we'll talk about backups in a little bit. You simply call one of our restore APIs, restore DB instance from DB snapshot. Whenever you restore, it always creates a new instance. We never restore in place. So we'll give you a new instance. It's running some particular version. Let's say it's running 12.102 v12 here, which is, I believe is the April PSU. Spin up this restore, do a little testing, make sure your application works and is happy, um, and then make just that modify DB instance call, and we'll do the upgrade for you. So, so it's a shared responsibility model here. You have to decide what to upgrade to and when, and then just tell us to do it and we'll do it. So you can make this modify call either in the console or in the CLI, or you can have automation Python scripts doing this for you however you want. Um, you can do it immediately when the, when the call is made, or you can do it in your next maintenance window, Sunday at 3 a.m., it'll just happen for you. Our automation is gonna do the work, so if it's a minor version upgrade, we're just gonna restart your instance on a new Oracle home, we'll run cat PSU, we'll run a few validation scripts and whatever we need for that PSU, and then we'll get you back up and running. Now you run your test scripts again, you make sure that you don't have any plan flips, you've got uh, stability in your instance, everything looks good on your side, and then just delete it. So you don't need that anymore, just call delete DB instance, stop paying us for it. So you know, this goes together as part of a strategy, we'll talk a little bit later about you know, how to pick versions and why, this goes as part of a strategy of how you can test these upgrades before, in dev test instances before going to production. We, we wanna give you those capabilities. So, so some best practices here, things to look at. First thing to do is always read our, our documentation. You've done an upgrade before, you've done an RDS upgrade before, still please just go check our documentation. We occasionally add you know, recommendations, suggestions, requirements to that, so it's always gonna be up to date with what's going on there. Um, for major version upgrades, you want to definitely do that because it'll tell you things like uh, gathering fixed and, and system statistics and the things you need to do there, but you'll also want to pre-create your parameter and option groups. Uh, we'll talk about parameter groups in a moment, but you want to get those kind of staged ahead for, for the new version. Um, and then a big thing is you want to make sure your objects are valid and your DB links are, are available. This is where we, we find customers run into problems periodically. So especially if you have invalid objects in the sys or system or XDB schemas, we're going to run into a problem because we are going to run, you know, it's an upgrade, we're going to run UTLRP. If you have a lot of invalid objects in your own schemas, that's fine, but it's gonna take extra time for us to, to run through compilation of those, and it can make it difficult for you to tell you know, what went wrong during an upgrade or after an upgrade, so you wanna make sure that those look good. And then database links, so we talked about outbound network access. You can connect your databases together, um, and that's a really neat capability, but it does create hard dependencies between multiple databases. And what we see sometimes is customer will have database links between database A and B, and then they send database A and B down for upgrade at the same time. Well, what happens when I run UTLRP on database A? It tries to reach all those, cross all those database links, 
compile all those materialized views. Now it has to wait about a minute or two for a TCP timeout for each one of those objects. So now your database is down for a while. So you want to make sure that if you are using database links, uh, you, you do have those available during upgrades, because this is going to be offline to you. Our automation is going to be running this upgrade. It's going to be running UTLRP. It's going it's to need those. You also need to make sure you have space. I think we require 750 megabytes. Um, obviously, you want to keep a little bit more, you know, you're doing your good DBA work. You want to keep a little bit more space in there. Uh, indexes are going to be created and indexed, uh, or whatever Oracle is going to be doing during this upgrade. It's going to need a little bit of extra space. Make sure it has that. And then one of the suggestions I make, sometimes if you see upgrades taking a long time without actually taking your database down, one reason that this happens is that uh, we're, we're doing an upgrade for your database. So we'll, we'll get into a backup of your database, and we'll get into backups a little bit. But backups happen roughly daily, depending on, on the, the configuration of your database. They'll, they'll happen each night in your, in your backup window, and they're always incremental. But they can take a while if it's been a full day since your last backup. So what will happen sometimes is you'll call the upgrade API. Your database will go into upgrading status. And then it'll just sit there. And, and it's up, it's running, but we're in upgrading for 30 minutes. And what that is is we're running that backup. And maybe it's 23 hours since your last backup window. And now we're writing all those blocks to S3. And we have to wait for that to finish before we back up. So that just gives you a little bit less visibility into what's going on. So if you take that backup maybe an hour ahead of time, if you see this sort of a problem, it can help alleviate that, and then when we, when we take our backup, there's just an hour's worth of blocks, block changes to backup, and we'll get right to it. After you finish the upgrade, you want to do some post checks. There's no in-place rollback of upgrades, so again, you could, you could use that snapshot that we created before backup or that you created before backup, um, before upgrade. You can, you can restore to that, um, but you definitely want to test these, make sure they work, make sure your plans don't flip, make sure, make sure your applications remain compatible. So let's talk about performance a little bit. Again, we, you know, I talked a little bit about instance types and storage that we offer. We have a lot of capability there. What I find when I talk to customers a lot, when, when, they're, when they're starting their journey to RDS, workload is, is something that we really want them to understand. And, and that's where customers are going to be most successful when they, when they best understand their workload. And the way the conversation usually goes is vendor X says um, they can give me a million IOPS for this, and vendor Y says they can give me uh, super performant CPUs for this. And what we always do with that conversation is say, I don't care about vendor X, I don't care about vendor Y. What's your workload? What do you need? Because we, we often look at customers who say, I've got this box, it can do a million IOPS, the next version of it can do two million IOPS, and we look at their AWR report and they're using 100,000 IOPS. Probably don't need you know, any, any of that extra capacity. We, we find that customers are very often over-provisioned on-premises because, again, you're used to that old, operate, the, the old CapEx model where you have to buy hardware and sit on it for, you know, you tell the accountants three years, but it's really probably five, six, seven years that you're running on these things. So you, you over-provision it to start with, and then after that long run time, who knows what it gets there. So um, you know, the key thing here is to understand what your workload looks like. I, I kind of try and break it out into three major buckets, bursty work, workloads, workloads that need to scale up and down, and then workloads that are pretty steady. So um, with EC2, when, when we tell you how many vCPUs are in, on your instance, those are how many vCPUs are on your instance. So if you have four vCPUs, those are yours. If you're not using them, they're idle. If you're using them, they're busy. No one else is using those. We don't oversubscribe. The only instance where that's not true is going to be our burstable instance types. And we like to use the term burst to, to let you know that that is over, oversubscribed. And it gives you predictable ways of measuring that performance. So it's not just that somebody else is sharing that CPU, and you may get some of it, and they may get some of it. You can watch burst balances uh, go up and down as you use them, and you can predict when you're going to run out of those, and you can make sure that you can understand and model those workloads. So for your dev test, for your smaller production instances, where really nothing happens for long periods of time, and then all of a sudden there's a lot of activity, the T2 family is really great for that. It's, you, you get that really good cost performance benefits. Um, they're very affordable. You get baseline CPU performance that's very predictable, and then when you do need a burst for, for short periods of time, you can see those bursts, 
and you can see how they run, and you can see when you're going to run out of, of, of runway. Where a lot of our customers run workloads are these scale up and down workloads. So these are retailers that maybe have periodic peaks. Um, ShopDirect is a UK retailer that's one of our big customers. They do this for Black Friday, and they've, they've survived Black Friday every year. They've, uh, they've, they've been very happy with how this works. And the idea is that you know, your workload's pretty steady for a while, but maybe one week, one month, one quarter of a year, it's going to suddenly shoot up, right? We just had the holidays. Everyone just went through Black Friday and Cyber Monday. You don't want to be paying for these really big, powerful instances that you need for Black Friday the entire 11 months out of the year, right? So you want to be able to, to run at a certain baseline level, and then as you see that, uh, the, those peaks coming up, you can plan for it, you can take a quick outage, and you can scale up for them. With multi-AZ, it's just a quick failover, so these are, these are back in, in one or two minutes. So it's pretty convenient. Again, you could do those when you make a modify call, or you can have it happen in a maintenance window. And what I really like to talk to customers about is, is optimizing for response time. So we're used to using proxy measures, like how, how much CPU percentage, um, what are my IOPS, what, you know, how, how busy is the database? And that's really not the right question to ask. It's, it's am I satisfying my response times for my customer qu requests? And, and so again, you know, with the CapEx world, we're used to having a lot of database hardware just sitting there for three years, five years. So we run at very low CPU utilization. We get scared when it gets to 50%, because that means that maybe in a year or two, I'm going to have to tell my VP that, that I, I bought too little database hardware. Well, with RDS, you can scale that up and down when you need. So you could run at higher CPUs, uh, high, high, higher utilization on your CPUs. You can run at 80% on your CPU, and it's really not a big deal as long as your response times are fine. And the same goes with storage. If you're, if you're close to your utilization on storage, as long as you're, you're towards the top of your headroom um, and your response times are fine, you don't really need to worry about it. But let's say that you do decide that, that, uh, that you need to worry about it and, and you have that peak coming up. So in this example, I'm running a M42X large. I've got eight vCPUs and 32 gigs of RAM. It's a you know, lower-end, midline machine. It does pretty well. And I know that I've got this peak coming up. So I'll, I'll schedule for my maintenance window next weekend, a quick little one-minute failover. Call that modify DB instance API. Now I've scaled up to a DB M4 4x large. So I've got twice the CPUs, twice the memory. I've also got twice the storage bandwidth, uh, storage throughput for EBS. And that's an important thing that, that we overlook sometimes. But each instance has, I, I like to think of it as three things the CPU, the memory, and the network bandwidth. It's very rare for a database to saturate front side network bandwidth, right? We're, we're doing most of our work inside the database CPU and between the database and storage, and then sending results back out. Uh, data warehouse systems are more likely to send a lot out the front side, but mostly it's on the backside networking. And our instance classes each, there's an EBS optimized throughput page you could look in our documentation. Um, and they each have limits, and as you go up, you're going to have more capability to EBS storage. And that's where customers run into a problem sometimes. My CPU is low, my IOPS are low, why is my system lagging, why are my response times high? It's because you're hitting that limit. So, so as you go up to these larger sizes, you get those. Now, I mentioned before that we're doing some things to help you with that, that license optimization, to help you get more, more value and benefit out of those. Well, a feature that we launched this year on EC2 and then came to RDS Oracle is called EC2 CPU optimization. So because we are working with commercially licensed software, I don't always have elasticity and flexibility. So it, it's nice that I can, I can jump up in, on these instance classes and go, go to more hardware, but I don't have CPU licenses for that. So, so how do I do that? Well, with CPU optimization, we allow you to almost define your own instance class. So um, again, we have in our documentation the, the, the full matrix of all the capabilities here, but essentially you say, give me an instance and tell it to run only this many CPUs or this many CPU cores with hyperthreads on or off, and you can control, have full control over um, how many CPU licenses you need. So, so for example, I can run an M44X large, tell it to keep my eight vCPUs, because that's what I'm licensed for, but now I still get 64 gigs, I get, you know, I, I, I've increased my SGA, 
that reduces my need to, to read and write from disk. I've got that higher throughput to disk, so I've now got more capabilities, but I don't wor have to worry about my licensing. So it's nice capability, allows you to, to have a, a little bit more control over that. You can even run some of our really big beefy instance classes with one, two, three, four terabytes of, of RAM with very few CPUs, so it's nice capability. The important thing is, once this peak is passed, stop paying us so much money and scale down. So um, scale back down to that two extra large instance with your 8B CPUs and your 32 gigs of RAM. Now, notice what I did here is I was running a DBM4 2X large, went to a 4X large, and now I've come down to an M5 2X large. The other thing to keep in mind is that, is that we do come out with new instance classes every year or so. Those work, start in EC2 and work their way to RDS. You definitely want to, again, get out of that CapEx mindset where you've, you, you kind of like find the server you like and hug it for three or five years. Be a little bit more flexible about what you're running on because what happens over time is we come out with these new instance classes. We're always iterating these generations. The cost goes down, the price the cost goes down, the performance goes up. So you get better cost performance ratio on these and you, and you get benefits from doing it. So this is a great opportunity when I'm, I'm done with the scaling exercise to go back down to, my, uh, to the, the smaller instance class but on the newer generation. And then, of course, I can drive all this with automation, right? The, again, the benefit of, of our automation of everything being cloud equals API, you know, everything's API-driven, is I can build alarms to do this for me. So I probably have most of my workloads where I, I want to be in the loop and I want to make sure that I know that we need to scale up. But you might have some workloads where if I can define a metric, say, at 95% CPU, we have to schedule an schedule a upgrade to a new instance class, or at 30% CPU, maybe schedule a, a downgrade to a, a lower instance class, you can write CloudWatch alarms and fire Lambda events that'll do that for you, and we'll, we'll show another example of that a little bit later. And then finally, that third bucket for, for workload types are gonna be your reserved instances. So, so the, these are instance classes where um, it's, it's all the same instance classes, this is just a, a payment instrument for, uh, you pay a little bit more upfront, we reduce the price for you. So those steady workloads, your PeopleSoft, your Fusion Middleware, those things, those the ERP things that are just always gonna be running stable, those things you can use re reserved instances. Performance, let's talk about how, how I understand what my performance is doing. So a question I see in the forums, a question I hear from customers is why am I using 100% CPU? I don't know, it's your database. Tell me why you're using 100% CPU. So, so the CloudWatch graph is great. It shows me that I'm using 100% CPU, but I really need to know what's going on there. So we launched a, a feature a couple years ago called RDS Enhanced Monitoring, and that gives you per process metrics down to the, the one second granularity up, up to 60 seconds. I recommend about 15 seconds for most of your workloads. When you see a problem happening, you want to dial that down to one second. You want to have this running in general on your workloads where you'll care if there's a problem because um, you know, it's always better to have that data going in, into the problem instead of turning it on afterwards. But what this lets you do is say, not just that I'm at 100%, and not just the additional graphs that I get, but I can actually see at a process level where my, my, uh, my CPU's going. So this is you know, almost like running top on the host. We've presented this to you in the console, and now I can see some idiots running a, a parallel query here that's using 100% of my CPU. So that gets you part of the way there, but really, why am I using 100% of my CPU? Well, we launched a feature called Performance Insights for our open source-based engines, and now it's made it the, way, the rest of the way through to our, our, our commercial engines. We launched it for Oracle a couple weeks ago, and it'll be coming to SQL Server soon. So with Performance Insights, we're gathering data information, similar to enhanced monitoring, but we're doing it inside the database, and we're looking at database workload as an active session metric. So average active sessions. This might look familiar. The nice thing here is that this is not a licensed feature. This is not using AWR. This is not using Diagnostic and Tuning Pack. This is available on Postgres, MySQL, Oracle Standard Edition, Oracle Enterprise Edition. You've got the same tuning methodology now, all available to the AWS console. You can consume this in the console. You can push it to other services as JSON. So now you can start to see, really, um, I've got my 100% CPU. I've got it broken down by, by weight classes. I can even dial, dial into the weight classes. And I can even dial in a SQL and say, okay, this is, 
This is the uh, SQL that idiot wrote. Turns out the idiot's me. I'll stop running this giant parallel query, um, rather dumb parallel query. Um, and then now I have int full introspection into how my database is doing. So availability. Availability is obviously very important. Um, so hopefully you're familiar with our global infrastructure. We've got 19 public regions today, 57 availability zones. There's always more on the way. There's some we've announced. There's some we haven't. So if you look at these dots, I like to think of a region as a geographical location on the planet where you could build highly available applications. Each of our regions has at least two availability zones. All the newer regions have three or more availability zones. And these are basically physically separate infrastructure areas. So you can think of them as data centers. They might be clusters of data centers. Um, and then, you know, on the map here, you can see how much each one has. Almost all of ours are three or more now. We have a few that, that have, I think, six in, in Virginia. Um, and you want to, first of all, start with, with regions. So how do I pick a region? Well, the biggest one is going to be latency. It needs to be close to my customers, so they have good response times. Second one is going to be data sovereignty. So if you have requirements about where your data is located, we make sure that, that if, if we've built a, a data center, if we've if we built a region in Frankfurt and we've told you that remains in Germany, then your data is going to remain in Germany. So where data sovereignty laws come into place, we want you to comply with those. So we'll give you tools to move your data between regions, but if your data is in a region, we've given you the assurance that that data remains there. Other attributes are going to be cost. So it does cost us different amounts to, to run infrastructure in different parts of the world. We try to be transparent about that. So you know, if you have dev test workloads, maybe run those in Oregon where there's plentiful hydroelectricity. If your customers are in Singapore, run it in Singapore. It is going to be a little bit more expensive. And then not all features are available in all regions. Some of the smaller regions uh, lag a little bit, but that's generally going to be uh, the, the lesser consideration. Latency is usually your bigger one. How do I decide which availability zone I want to use? Trick question, you don't want to decide which AZ. We want you to treat all the, all the AZs within a region as the same as each other. They come, they go. Uh, your infrastructure needs to be kind of smeared across those. With your database instance, databases are kind of singleton things, though, right? So, so they, they need to go in one place. So, so you'll, pick a, you'll put your database somewhere. It'll be in one availability zone. And, and we want to make sure that it's available. So what we'll do is we'll give you automation that lets you replicate your data to another availability zone synchronously. So with RDS multi-AZ, it's push button, select this on or off. We'll do the work for you. So uh, it's, it's fully managed secondary in region, so this is not cross-region. The good thing about being in region is these availability zones are close to each other, about one or two milliseconds, so now we can do synchronous replication. When, when we can do synchronous replication, we can do automated failover. When you have asynchronous replication, when, when you have a lag of maybe a second or two, now I have to worry about data loss. I can't do an automated failover. I have to talk to my VP about whether I can take an outage or something. With synchronous replication in region, we can just automate all that for you. We detect a problem, we fail over automatically. So it's just as simple as allocating infrastructure in an entire new availability zone. We restore a snapshot. We create instances. We create an exact copy of your, the, the same, same hardware, the same EC2 instance, the same volumes. We set up synchronous replication, so now they're identical. So every time you write to one, it's on the other. There's no waiting. Um, and then we automatically, our automation is going to detect failures if there's an availability zone problem, if there's a network problem, if a disk fails, if somebody cuts a fiber, two fibers. Uh, we'll automatically detect that. We'll, We'll turn that standby into a primary. We'll allow your applications to reconnect. Again, that process takes about a minute to two. And then as soon as we've figured it out that that problem's not there anymore, we'll go ahead and just automatically reinstate your standby, your, your secondary instance into your secondary availability zone, and get it back into synchronous replication. This is a great feature that we see customers, you know, when we, when we talk to you about what your RPOs, RTOs are, what, what's your true uptime requirement. Um, 
this, we find that this generally works for, for most customers that, that are even using things like Rack and DataGuard when you look at what their application downtimes really are, really truly are over the last year or so. Um, so, so, you know, when do I use this? Well, if it's a critical workload, we used to say production workloads, but if it's a critical workload, maybe it's a dev test workload, and if your database is down, you've got 40 developers that are going out for bagels, and I love bagels, but we want people at the desk working, right? So if it's gonna be critical for something, then consider running multi-AZ. If it's really not critical, pay us less and run single AZ. Just be aware that you have a different availability model there. We only have the SLA for multi-AZ. The nice thing is it's symmetric configuration. So like you said, exact same EC2 instance class, exact same storage attributes. So there's no need to fail back. So sometimes you run these asymmetric configurations where I've got you know, my, my big beefy production hardware, I've got my little wimpy standby hardware, I do a failover, problem solved, now I need to fail back and take that second outage. Well, we use the symmetric configuration, so once you fail over, you're failed over, fail back when the, the next event happens or when you need to do the next scaling operation or something. The big thing here is to test. So you want to know what your applications do, how they respond to this. So um, we do give you an API to do this. It's the reboot DB instance API with a force failover flag. It exercises all the same components that will exercise when, it, when a problem happens. You want to make sure that your applications aren't caching DNS, they're not holding onto things. They can automatically handle that, that failover. Backup. So we use, again, we, we use EBS volumes. We're built on existing infrastructure here. Your backups are basically a stream of EBS snapshots, and we give you kind of two ways of doing that. One, if you enable automated backups, we'll just do that for you once a day. Other, other option is manual backups, and that's just our, our, our snapshot DB instance API. And, and, and they're basically creating snapshots in one single stream of snapshots. It's just a, how they get there is, is up to you. With the, with the daily backups, we'll, we'll do that in your backup window. When you do have automated backups in, enabled, we will run your database in archive log mode, and we'll take responsibility for sweeping those archive redo logs off to, to S3 every few, few minutes. So you will see they'll switch at most every five minutes. They'll, they'll fill up, either, either switch when they're, they're full or switch when they hit five minutes. We'll back up, and that allows us to give you a point in time restore up, up to about you know, any time in the last five minutes or so. Again, if you want to take those manual backups, those will be kept forever. If you take our automated backups, you just specify the retention window, and we'll delete those for you whenever, you want, whenever they hit the retention window. It goes up to 35 days, default in the console, seven days. That's generally in line with what, what most customers do. So you know, what do I do with these backups? Well, there, we have two major ways to restore these. With, it, with just your snapshots, the fastest, easiest way is going to be just to restore snapshot. This creates, a, again, a new instance. We'll always uh, restore out of place. It creates a new instance that's going to um, be a clone of where we were at the time that, that snapshot was taken. This is great for dev refreshes, figuring out what happened last week, um, testing upgrades, testing, testing parameter changes. And we also have point in time restore. So if you want a specific point in time, 3, 3.01 and 53 seconds last Saturday, I need to know what happened you know, right before that, that moment in my database, we'll restore a snapshot, we'll apply redo logs. It takes a little bit longer because we do have to reply those re apply those redo logs, but we'll get it back up for you. What are some best practices here? Well, um, do keep in mind that we, you know, we're, when you're in automated backups, we're in archive log mode. When, you're, when you have that disabled, set to zero days retention, we'll run your database in no archive log mode. So there will be two things to keep in mind there. One, we'll have to restart your instance when you go to zero. And the second thing is that we will delete existing automated backups, not manual snapshots, but automated backups when you turn backups off. Um, the nice thing about that is maybe on a new instance, you don't want to turn backups on yet, and that way you'll be running in no archive log mode. You get those fast loads. If a problem happens, you just throw the thing away and start over. Once that's done, you want to, to enable backups and go into archive log mode. You do want to set, give us a, a time when your backups can run. We'll specify a random time for you, but you can always change that. And you want to run that at a low usage time. There, there's, there's not an ongoing impact when the backup is running, but when the backup initiates, there's going to be a second or two where we'll really briefly pause I.O. 
Um, so you want that to happen at three in the morning or whenever your low usage time is. We'll pick a random low usage time for the region, but let's say you're in Oregon, your application is facing customers in Asia. Well, maybe you want to pick the, the, the time that's actually low usage for them, not the low usage for the, the West Coast. Let me talk about configuration really quickly. So, you know, we really want you to, to rethink additions. This is one of the areas where we've seen our customers probably have the biggest wins and save the most money. Really used to running Enterprise Edition, has a lot of great bells and whistles. I love a lot of the things that it does. It's a really great piece of software. But we find the customers, when they really look at it, why do you need Enterprise Edition? Why are you paying three, four, five times what Standard Edition costs? Um, sometimes we could find the answer is, I really, really do need Enterprise Edition. And if you need Enterprise Edition, we're happy to let you run it. You need those partitioning, advanced compression options, against advanced security options. We've got the, in, the infrastructure automation to run that for you. There's three big enablers that we think that, that, that help customers make that decision. For customers that are running DataGuard for high availability, or even Rack, we have a, a really large retailer in the UK who's able to come from Rack down to Multi-AZ. Um, still in Enterprise Edition, but they were able to, to reduce that footprint of licensing. Or customers that go from Enterprise Edition down to Standard Edition, because now our Multi-AZ provides the, the high availability that they're getting with DataGuard. The second one is, is encryption. Again, you know, encryption's not something we have to worry about for licensing anymore. With our RDS storage encryption, we're just handling that for you, so you don't have to worry about advanced security option. Um, sorry, and then uh, tuning with performance insights. So we have some customers that are looking about moving away from diagnostic and tuning pack. So it's something that you can consider. It's, it's a way that you can save money. And again, rethinking versions also. So you know, hopefully no one's here on, on 10G. I'm sure everyone's on 12C, right? Um, 11G is a very popular release. It is an end-of-life product. It is going away. Um, so you do want to be making those, those, those upgrades and migrations. 12.1's been out with RDS for a while. 12.2's been out for a couple weeks. So we want, want to see you moving there. Um, we want to see you kind of staying towards the front of the pack. So applying those PSUs, staying current on versions. We will eventually deprecate old versions. You, you might have seen 11.202, 11.203 we got rid of. Uh, those are no longer available because Oracle's no longer re releasing patches for those. Uh, parameters, you know, we get the question every once in a while, um, do I want a parameter group, for instance, or a parameter group for all my fleet? Well, it's kind of in the middle there. You want a parameter group for each kind of clump of instances. So maybe, maybe my production instances, my reporting instances, my dev test instances. And this is really great, because now I've got the automation infrastructure as code. I've got management here. Um, you know, no, no longer do I have different SGA sizes in all of my instances. I've got a single parameter group that can handle all those for me. Sorry, I don't want to run out of time here. Um, the final thing is, is staying in the know of, uh, of, of what's going on in your database. So um, we have a lot of ways to notify you of problems. So CloudWatch alarms, we're going to let you know when you've hit metrics. You can create alarms on things like free storage space, CPU, memory utilization, swap utilization. Uh, you can set, have alarms go off on those. What's really nice about that is, is as those are going off, you can have an alarm fire, and you could actually, you probably want to get somebody notified about that wake somebody up, page somebody, but you can also fire Lambda, and that, that Lambda can do something that we talked about earlier where it makes that modified DB instance call and scales your instance up automatically. N event notification, if you're not using this, you definitely should be, so, so we have SNS integration, so as things happen on your instance, if there's availability issues, as upgrades start and finish, as you near full storage, we'll send those SNS event notifications, and you can, again, email or page somebody. And then we have recently launched what we call RDS recommendations. And this is a nice feature where we look at your database workload. You know, it's starting with infrastructure, things like versions. But we're going to tell you things like, you're behind a couple versions. You should upgrade. Um, you know, this is a nice feature in the console. Start looking at this. We're going to be adding things to it. Uh, give us feedback if there's things that you'd like to see here. 
Um, but this will let you know things like our best practices are, are, are not being used on your databases and gives you kind of some, some quick, easy ways to just go, go enable those. And then finally, I say script all the things. You know, the DBAs, really what we bring is, as, you know, from our years of experience is our little toolkit of shell scripts and SQL scripts. We're very used to automating things with cron jobs, writing, writing little Perl scripts. Um, every DBA's got a pile of those. Well, now you've got your entire infrastructure at your hands. Um, what version am I using for all the databases in my fleet? How healthy are they? What instance classes are, are they running? What's my total CPU core count across my entire fleet of databases? These are all questions that you can answer now with our APIs, with our CLI, with our SDKs. So everything is accessible programmatically. You can write Python scripts that do this. You can utilize some of your existing scripts. You can have scripts that call things, integration with Lambda. All these things make it a lot easier to run your fleet and again, empower you to, to be a force multiplier for, for your database fleet. So that's it for me. Um, I'm gonna be back in, a, in about 10 minutes to answer some questions, uh, but for now, I'd like to bring up Phil, and he's gonna talk about the UK Ministry of Justice and their migration story and what they've been able to do with RDS Oracle. Okay, it's quite exciting. Uh to be here to be able to actually talk to you guys about what we managed to achieve over the last year. Um, so the uh, Legal Aid Agency, they operate a 1.7 billion pound fund that provides legal aid um, to the people that most need it. So the applications and the daily transactions uh, really matter to people's lives at a time when they're quite vulnerable. So what did we do? We had help from AWS and uh, version one to help us successfully migrate a large proportion of the LAA's core business applications into AWS. From a database perspective, what does this mean? So we had an on-premise um, data center with uh, all of the applications being um, operating data, uh, Oracle databases in the back end, and they varied from 9i through to 12c. Those databases were running uh, on Spark hardware with Solaris operating system. They were in size of about 200 gig to one terabyte. Um, they were heavily integrated amongst themselves with the integration hub operating at its core and also operating a number of third-party um, interactions via um, email, file transfer, and uh, web service interactions. So what are our database migration considerations? So primarily, one of the ones we were looking at was licensing. Now, we had a strategic objective, as Michael had alluded to, was the fact that we wanted to move to um, Oracle Standard Edition, having spent our entire database set on Enterprise. Um, obviously, there's a feature gap between Standard Edition and Enterprise, and so we had to assess each database application in turn. Um, out of the eight databases we moved to um, AWS, six of those uh, we were able to get into Standard Edition. Um, two had uh, a couple of uh, pieces of uh, Enterprise Edition functionality that we couldn't get away from. Um, but they all did go into RDS. So that meant we were able to take uh, advantage of the um, uh, provisioning and the backup and recovery and monitoring processes that the um, RDS does so well. Our other considerations uh, were around the method. Looking at what our database migration method was going to be, obviously we need to understand the as-is. Um, that has involved the size, the version, the connectivity, uh, and the throughput of those databases. We also needed to do a health check. A lot of these days, databases have been around for 10, 12 years. So um, 
I'm sure no one else's databases are in that way, but obviously there's a, a few um, warts in there that we needed to address. We basically had a remediation plan to look at what things we could do to de-risk that migration. There, there were a number of things. Um, for example, purging routines that weren't um, working successfully. Um, we were able to address those to reduce the footprint and the age of some of the data. Um, and obviously moving stuff out of things uh, where people had created custom objects in the system schema, which um, we wouldn't have been able to migrate to RDS with those there. Um, another consideration for us was the fact that we had an Endian conversion. Um, operating on Spark Solaris and moving to x86. Um, that narrowed down our migration um, possibilities or migration methods. Um, outage tolerance. Um, fortunately, um, we, we needed to assess that, but fortunately our business were used to operating service windows, so we were able to take advantage of those. And uh, the last thing on there really about the method is the roots alive. Um, we need to make sure to actually pres um, preserve our dev test lifecycle. We had a, uh, a transition mode of operation as we moved things in, in small chunks, and we didn't make sure actually we didn't just move production, we moved our ability to be able to support production and, and support development that was going on. That was also instrumental in being able to refine that migration methodology and process that meant that actually when we did come to our migrations, we actually achieved those with no um, real defects. So what was our database migration method of choice? Um, we opted to use Oracle Data Pump. That dealt with the ending conversion, and, um, and it, though it did require an outage, that outage window was relatively small. Um, RDS is quite contained. Um, so what we had to do in order to be able to achieve that um, database um, data pump import was to be able to actually stand up a, an EC2 migration server. Um, we needed to do that so we could transfer the uh, data pump export files into it and then allow us to be able to transfer those into the database directory. So we stood up that database migration server. It needed all the appropriate um, Oracle clients and also the DBI and DVD um, libraries for Perl. Once that was established, we were then able to create the, um, the target database instance using CloudFormation with the relative parameters that we needed, um, high availability, um, encryption, et cetera, but also um, the database table spaces and database directories that we needed. Um, once we had that established, this is when the outage then had to begin. And at that point, we needed to make sure that we got a controlled shutdown, so essentially uh, making sure that the source database had no processes running and there was no transactions in transit. We're then able to run the data pump export, um, which has a parallel capability generating multiple files. And then we're able to copy the files across a secure VPN into that EC2 instance. Um, as I alluded to, right, once we got those in there, we then used the Perl scripts to be able to transfer those into the RDS instance. And we're then able to operate and instigate the database data, data pump import um, into the database instance. Um, at that point, your database is there and everything's all good to go. There were, there were a number of post um, import tasks, mainly related to grants, some related to um, sort of refining some of the schedules. Um, but at that point, you're then able to reestablish connectivity. That all sounds quite straightforward and easy, um, but it's simple, and simple works, and it was very, very effective. Obviously, there was quite a significant runbook, and quite detailed runbook that was there, and like I said, being able to run through that migration process through our DevTef's life cycle meant actually that runbook got more refined and more accurate and more successful. 
but it wasn't without challenges. There were a number of challenges, but um, a couple that I'd like to highlight were around some of the connectivity that we needed. We needed to be able to operate emails, and we needed to be able to operate file transfers. Uh, operating um, email, email sending from the database uh, wasn't quite as straightforward as we had hoped moving um, to, um, to operate SES out of the database. So we engaged with RDS support and worked with them to come up with a, um, a bolt-on that allowed us to minimize the transformation of our own code um, and actually um, still leverage that SES capability. So that involved getting the right certificates installed into the wallet, um, having then the, uh, the, the Pilescore patches that, that were able to open up the SMTP connection, establish the AHL handshake, and initialize the um, TLS connection, and we're able to push that email out. But that was all packaged up as a nice little bolt-on that we're able to leverage. Um, the utility file challenge we had in terms of trying to be able to operate file transfer in and out. Um, util file works, DB directories are there and they operate, but with an RDS, that database directories are all quite tied down. Um, so essentially, we weren't able to actually force files in and out very easily. And also, AWS had deprecated the use of SHA-1, which meant um, for interaction with S3. So the solution for that was that we needed to upgrade to Oracle 12C to be able to use operate um, SHA-2. We needed to install um, the Apex option group, which then came with the, uh, um, the uh, RESTful web services that we can look to operate. And then we were able to use the Perl scripts to upload the um, um, certificates into the Oracle wallet. RDS then helped us uh, to wrap all of those web service functions into a Pilescore block that we were then able to leverage and use. And that was an effective way of us being able to still operate file transfer in and out of the database. One of the impacts of that was that we needed to um, upgrade to 12C, was we lost the ability to be able to operate database links from 12C through to 9I. Um, a quick and easy solution for that for us was to, instant, um, to introduce a hop database as actually as a conduit between the 12C and the 9I instance and just mapping some of those uh, package signatures and uh, parameters. Ask a bit of performance quickly, so I don't think we have much time. Um, just as a last little wrapper, the, uh, as a verdict, um, it was a very, very successful migration um, and, and planning absolutely paid off. Imperative they understand the as is, and it was imperative also that we actually use the DevTest lifecycle to improve and prove our methodology and get that runbook up. Um, we also found that RDS support was both effective and, um, and responsive. Um, I think they definitely like a challenge, and when we did challenge them, they didn't just give us a bot response. We came up with options, and we were able to actually um, tailor the right option for the right solution. Um, we also got performance improvements. We uh, pretty much witnessed performance improvements up to 50% once we'd moved to AWS. That's all. So we've got about five minutes for questions. I, sorry, I ran a little long. Um, so if there's any questions, there's a couple microphones there. Feel free to hop up. If, uh, if, you, if we run out of time, they may kick us off the stage. But uh, I'll try and stick around. We could hang out here for a little bit until they kick us out of the room, and then we'll see the nearest bar or something. So, yes. Is this on? Yeah. yeah. My name's April. Um, you have a public-facing EC2, right? 
Sure. Is that where you install your Oracle client and do all your client, Oracle client, data pump, import, export, COBOL, C compiles, is that where you're going to do it? Or do you need an, another box to so, do that? So essentially, where do my clients run when I have the database in a private subnet? Yes. And it's going to vary by configuration. Um, you'll have, you know, a lot of times you're going to have your EC2 instances in private subnets as well, and they may be inside of load balancers that your applications actually connect to. Um, a lot of cu customers use a, what we kind of refer to as a bastion host, so where you have your SQL Plus, where your DBA kind of runs their scripts, where they maybe have some cron jobs that they haven't moved to Lambda yet. Um, that would happen on a host, again, inside that secure perimeter, um, connecting in, in, within the VPC, and then you have an SSH tunnel to get onto that host from outside, or, v, or, or a VPN. Uh, what was the cost benefit of your migration? Uh, and uh, why did you decide to stay on Oracle? Um, okay, so the, the cost benefit was mainly around the fact that we were operating out of two data centers, right? If we had failed to migrate into the, in the time frame that we needed to, it would have incurred a cost of two million pound per month. So if you offset against that the cost of actually what it's costing us to operate those services within AWS, the, the difference is, is massive. Um, why did we opt to stick with Oracle? Um, we're, on, we're on a path, we're on a journey. This is just the first step. The most important thing for us, and the most cost-saving thing for us was moving out of those on-site data centers. Question of this microphone? Yeah, when you go through the upgrade process to apply a PSU, does the endpoint change? So, so yeah, when, when I do an upgrade, does that make any changes to my endpoints? And the answer is no. So whether you're scaling, whether you're scaling storage, doing upgrades, applying your, none, none of that's gonna affect. There, you can um, modify the instance identifier, and that is what goes into your endpoint, but as long as you don't change that, the endpoint itself never changes. Now, if you do a restore, again, restores are always out of place. So if I restore my production database, it'll get a new name and new endpoint, but upgrades don't. Thank you. Sure. Is there any plans to support DataGuard with RDS? So, uh, so are there plans to support DataGuard? Unfortunately, we can't talk roadmap, so I'd love to talk, I'd love to tell everyone all of our investments in the future Believe me, we, we are very invested in RDS Oracle, but we don't talk about our, our roadmap, unfortunately. Uh, did you guys have, when you have a lot of database links with other enterprise Oracle databases, did you guys end up moving everything at the same time, or was it a path where one by one there were applications moving but still having to maintain database links with other databases on-prem? Yeah, so we, like you said, we had a lot of connections. Um, we moved them piece by piece. Um, essentially, during transition mode of operation, we're operating across three different data centers because this was a hybrid deployment, which I didn't mention for lack of time, but essentially um, those links were operating across um, secure VPNs and they were very effective. That was one of our concerns, but um, it was unfounded. Those transactions, uh, the latency was fine. Thank you. And I think we got time for one more question from the stage. So the question is to Phil, and your, your late, last point here, Phil, was about performance improvements uh, being observed, but there's obviously been some recent uh, press reports about uh, kind of uh, performance and availability issues. Is there, is there a comment on that? Yeah, one of, one of, the, one of the first things I, I mentioned was that the, um, we moved a large proportion of the applications to AWS. Those performance and... Um, uh, availability considerations that, that have been raised in the press are associated with the applications we didn't move to AWS. Um, the team that are supporting that are working with the uh, suppliers to address those issues to make sure they don't happen again. Okay. 
Thank you, every much, thank you very much, everyone, for coming. I, I want to be respectful of the next session's time, so I'll, I'll take answers from the back of the room. I will be at our booth tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. if anyone has additional questions. So thank you a bunch. Enjoy the rest of your week.